moving into this integral politics area, yeah. um, understandably so that there's probably, maybe your opinion on this, that people really behind the scenes that we're really not exposed to or given the information that they really exist to some degree, wouldn't they be very apprehensive to allow a third party to come into existence to kind of start shaking up the system yeah. in some manner to kind of eventually evolve yeah. beyond what we have now. Yeah. Um, if you can just talk about that, yeah. because I think there, there's just so much that we don't know yeah. that there's individuals that really have the power and hold on to that power at all costs. Yeah. And on a global perspective, even. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, um, it, it get into a fascinating area and um, let me actually, let me back up and give a couple reasons that uh, integral politics is one of the most seriously difficult issues to, con to consider. I mean, a truly integral politics. Um, to begin with, if you're looking at it from the point of view of the voters, and if less than 10% of the voters are at integral stages, then a democracy guarantees no integral. Yikes. That's kind of a bad news item. So I'll come back to that issue. Is in today's world of transparency, how do you actually get people at with higher levels of consciousness? How do you get them into office when their only justification is I'm better than y'all? It's a it's a killer. It's a killer. I mean, why development, you know, produces greater depth and less span? And now, of course, the pig and the python can change. I mean, the fact that development produces greater depth, less span, doesn't mean that this culture can't get a majority of its people into uh, teal or turquoise as it continues to move forward. But it does mean that it takes a long time and that it's not something that can readily be put into a political platform. It's just very, very difficult. If the founding framers of the Constitution in this country, what they actually were doing, looking back on it developmentally, was they were putting um, orange principles and laws into effect over amber, which is what they were trying to get away from. Um, getting away from ethnocentric, getting away from, well, they replaced mythic sources of knowledge with scientific sources of knowledge. They replaced ethnocentric uh, with democracy and world-centric. Uh, they replaced uh, slavery 
with freedom from that. And all of those are orange or social, con social stage five, social contract in, in Kohlberg's moral stages of development. If they had actually tried to justify that and say, okay, well, what we're doing, y'all, is we're creating a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that 10% of the people at Orange is going to work a whole lot better if we have a constitution that's Orange. And everybody else has to follow the Orange Constitution. You try pulling that today and see how far you get. You try coming along and saying turquoise is to today what orange was to 1776. And less than 10% of the population is turquoise. And our platform is, but they're smarter. <laughs> now, of course, they're not necessarily smarter. Just being a second tier means if you're stupid, you're colossally stupid. It means there are all sorts of ways you can screw things up. <laughs> but the, the, the problem of uh, uh, integral politics, part of it is, is just that, is how do you actually get a political party into power that is based on anything like this? So you kind of move that aside and say, well, that doesn't look promising. So what does look at least a little bit promising right now is you have leaders, and these are, again, mostly leaders in the Democratic Party. You have them who are, are they who are reading this material and, in a sense, endorsing it. So um, we've had um, uh, Bill Clinton speak positively about it at the World Economic Forum. Uh, we've had Al Gore say that Marriage of Sense and Soul was his favorite new book. Um, Hillary Clinton was asked at a press conference, what you're talking about sounds like the integral stuff Ken Wilber's talking about. And her response was, yes, yes, yes. Um, even 10, 5, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that that would have been possible, that we would have had political leaders who are actually seriously interested in these kinds of things. But um, they are. And so part of what we're looking at is basically um, enlightened leadership. I mean, leadership that has an understanding that the whole point about somebody being at a, quote, higher stage is not that they're at a higher stage. It's that so you can adjust the way you communicate with people at every stage. It's to be more effective with the entire spectrum of individuals at different levels of um, resonance, at different levels of unfolding, at different levels of development. And these different levels also are going to be not only stages of development, but stations in life. Because 
people have a right to stop at whatever level of development they want to, number one. And number two, even if they didn't, we don't know how to transform people very well anyway. It is a mystery how and why and exactly people transform. And so even if we were going to force you to be free, we don't know how to do it very well. So, so the, the, the political party issue is that those big issues stand back and kind of, uh, you know, uh, sort of dwarf uh, sometimes for me issues like, well, what do you think about Hillary versus Obama? And, you know, what do you think about so and so? I just kind of go, it's that compared to this that we have to figure out. So my sense is that it's going to be um, a decade or two while we have a series of enlightened leaders discussing these topics. And I think people like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Al Gore and I mean, even the Republican side of the, are reading this material too. I mean, Karl Rove has gotten a two-hour presentation on uh, integral development. Um, Jeb Bush, the brother that can read, <laughs> he's Florida. Florida Values Committee uses a brief history of everything, if you can imagine. Um, but it's going to be a, a decade or two of leaders grappling with just this issue. And I think this issue really is beyond um, any one person, Plato or Socrates or anybody. It's just an unbelievably complex issue. And it doesn't do to say the way well, most of the integral governance um, projects that I've seen, some of which are, are, are wonderful on, on side issues, miss this central issue. What they have is um, maybe they have three houses and then three houses within those. And then one of the houses is like a house of wisdom. And people in that are at integral stages and are there to oversee the other stuff that's being done. That's the easy part, claiming that. How do you get them elected into the so-called House of Wisdom? And how do you define what the House of Wisdom is? Right, it's that place where all the smarter people go. Zero chance of getting that put into place, non-coercively. So simply going in and saying, well, what we have to have is a house of wisdom, all that, that is nothing. That, 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 is, that contributes nothing to the issue. The issue is how do you justify the house of wisdom that is developmentally higher than 90% of the rest of the population? How do you dare justify that in today's world? Try getting it past Amber. Try getting it past green. 
Grant has chewed up developmental studies on their own, let alone Green, who can actually understand this, is going to vote for a house of wisdom whose members are taken from the stage higher than Green. <laughs> yeah, that'll go over big. Getting an actual politics in place that's integrally informed is an extraordinarily difficult issue. And it's the, it's the one that just really, really catches, catches me up. Um, I do think, just to repeat briefly the one part, that the next decade or so, what we're going to see is a continued discussion by actual leaders of just this issue. Because even Green is starting to realize in all their books, you know, Green and in the wake of, you know, is, you know, what do we do about Kansas? They write books like that, you know. Those, all those square states in the, they're, they're, those agrarian states that have mythic membership, traditional values. What do we do about traditional values? They're starting slowly to realize it's a developmental issue. And by shooting all developmental growth holarchies in the foot, you just shot yourself in the head. And they're slowly starting to get to that position. But that's where the discussion's going to be occurring. And I, I, I just get frozen up at almost those big, those issues um, on the way to thinking about some of the things that that you brought up. Did you want to, do you want to follow yeah, up? Just in the sense of how the importance of this election, I mean, this whole center of attention between who's, between, especially right now, between Barack and Hillary, and that's kind of a real quandary, and the importance of getting somebody in office now for the next, whether it's four or could possibly be eight years, seems incredibly significant in one sense, but in another sense, it's completely insignificant because that type of level of complexity, the developmental issues we're talking about, may not even be able to reach 5% of the population. So, you know, and I guess you said it doesn't really matter in a sense of Obama or Hillary, but in a sense, is that a very critical type of election or, or who is going to get in there at this particular point right now in this moment in history to yeah, continue uh, to, to forge yeah. forward? Um, in terms of, put that way, I think there are a lot of uh, differences between Obama and Hillary. But on this issue, I don't think there are. In other words, I don't think it's going to matter on this one issue who gets in to office, and not just between those two, but between anybody that I'm really aware of in the coming uh, even decade or so. And um, again, we know that Hillary is aware of Aqua and stuff. We, Obama is aware of these issues. Um, the pressure right now 
uh, is it mostly is going to come down to who's going to be, which figurehead is going to get which ethnic minority to be the first president? Is the first president going to be a woman or is it going to be an African-American? And that's about the level this is being played out in terms of the impact that it's going to have. Um, but the real problem, too, is that if you, and this is one of the reasons that I think before we can actually have a discussion about integral politics, that some fairly big changes need to be made in American politics, changes that are, um, that they're big enough to scare people. They scare me. And it's in a sense going into parliamentary types of systems as opposed to this big two-party system. Because what happened with the two-party system, it came into being when left and right first came into being. And then that was fine. Because there were only basically two parties. There was the left and there was the right. And the left were those who sat on the left side of the aisle at the French assembly and were basically revolutionary and essentially orange. And those on the right were traditionalists, uh, aristocratic, militaristic, patriarchal, so on. Um, and uh, essentially amber, mythic membership, blue V meme, that essential st structure. <clears throat> and having two parties go at it for a couple hundred years, in a sense, was fine. When most people of sort of intelligent voting age were either amber or orange, were either traditional or modern. But a sneaky little thing happened over the last 50 years, and that's that the leading edge split from orange into orange and green. And that left the Republicans with an inner split as well, which is they were no longer just pure amber or pure traditionalists. They were now orange and amber. So the, the Republicans had their progressive wing, the Wall Street Republicans. And the Wall Street Republicans were essentially orange in many, many ways. And they agreed with most of the Enlightenment liberal values, which is why we get the neocons that are liberals in an old-fashioned sense, which is really kind of funny. And then they're, they're, they're really uh, sort of the gut central core of the Republican Party remains the traditionalists at Amber, and they're fundamentalists and anti-abortion and in favor of not only prayer in school, but prayer in every one of y'all's houses. <laughs> y'all have to become <laughs> believers as well. And so that, um, all of a sudden now we've really got four major parties instead of two. And, and then that's not counting red, which usually goes with Democrats because there's 
pre-conventional and post-conventional, and red as pre-conventional, it always goes with post-conventional. So those that are red go with Democrats, because where else are you going to get a chance to have people say it's okay for presidents of the United States to get blowjobs? <laughs> so red's all in favor of that. <laughs> so red's in favor of that, any of that, because so red, but leaving that out, we have four major parties now. This is where it's getting sticky. And one of the major problems in terms of somebody who's generally liberal is that what's happened is it's very hard to get orange and green together. And now those are the two major wings of the Democratic Party. And the old Democrats are Enlightenment value Democrats. To believe, they believe in individual rights versus green, which believes in group rights. And green believes that the right not to have your feelings hurt trumps free speech. These are, it's very hard to get green and orange together. And of course, green hates orange. Because orange is capitalist this and capitalist that, and green is anti-capitalist everything. And so what you have in the Democratic Party are you have these two wings that loathe each other. And the leading edge of, of those two is green. And green actually has their presidential candidates get up and say in a veiled manner, I hate Western civilization, I hate this country, I hate the Enlightenment, I hate what's going on anywhere around here, but elect me your president. Who wants to elect this guy president who hates the whole civilization? So it's been easier for Karl Rove to unite amber and orange Republicans than it has been for anybody to unite orange and green Democrats. Now what that means is that the essentially fifth, and those two blocks are about 50-50. It used to be Democrats could count on getting out the vote because it was just a labor vote. It was essentially their, their core old-time labor. Um, and so they could get out the vote in Chicago and get out the mass labor vote wherever they needed to. Um, Karl Rove figured out a way for the Republican with traditional values to get out the vote. And that was basically by putting a person in every church precinct in every square state in the country. And it worked. And it's easier to get amber and orange together and get a 50% majority than it is to get orange and green together and get a 50% majority. So what that means is the same thing's gonna happen that's been happening to us the last decade or two. Republicans are gonna win. Now, I'm essentially, and sort of as a brand name, neither, neither merely Democrat nor Republican. As you all know anything sort of about integral political theory, um, the left and the right are defined as interiorists and exteriorists. Uh, 
there's been a, a, an intense attempt ever since the beginning of left and right to come up with a definition of them that works. And nobody's really succeeded. Um, we've even so recently we've had Boblio, an Italian political theorist, come up out with a book called Left and Right, A Useful Political Distinction. In other words, still keeping the distinction around. And he defines it as right believes in differences and left believes in no differences between people. Now, you can see where he got that. The right believes in old-fashioned caste systems and aristocracies and so on. They do believe in differences between humans. And the left doesn't. The left believes in an e everybody's equal. Um, but that, that doesn't really hold up for various reasons. And so I've come up with a, um, a definition that, that actually does seem to hold up. And that is, th this is for describing just left and right now, not Democrat and Republican, because Democrat and Republican have a lot of other things going on in them. But ask somebody where they think human suffering comes from. What's the main cause of human suffering? If you go to, why is somebody poor? You go to a Republican, they'll say, you don't have a work ethic, you don't have family values, you're not working hard enough, you aren't applying yourself hard enough. The problem's with you. Go to a Democrat, go to a leftist, and they'll say, um, society has not given you the opportunity, society has not given you an education, society has held you down, society is oppressing you. And the real difference between left and right is where they see the cause of human suffering. It doesn't lie interiorly or it doesn't lie exteriorly. And so, one of the, so I, am, I basically believe, of course, that you have to balance both. It's the same when Bill Clinton came out with his welfare bill called um, Responsibility and Opportunity. The responsibility part is your interior part. And that was to make the Republicans happy. And the responsibility of the opportunity part was the government gives you a helping hand. And that's the liberal part. And it was his attempt during the period where around the world what was called a, a third way, politics, was being put together. And I had a very small part to do with the theory of it in this country, uh, Anthony Giddens, uh, was working with Tony Blair in uh, Britain. There were 12, uh, 14 other major world political leaders that were working on a third way or a third wave um, politics, which was to blend the left and the right. And all of that fell apart um, with a cigar, I guess. <laughs> Um, 
and it's never quite been put back together again. But I think that, that because we have these four parties, the two-party system doesn't work very well anymore. And one of the transition things that might have to happen is that we come up with a parliamentary form of government that allows orange and green and amber their own parties. And the once that happens, I think there are certain ways, which I won't get into, um, but there are certain ways within the Senate and the House where you could have this essential problem of the House of Wisdom. There is a, at least a, a, a way to try coming up with that. And, but it's only going to happen if we change essentially from the two-party system. The two-party system is going to force <coughs> all of the first-tier parties to split into just two and then just pick one. And that's, I don't think that serves us well. And it doesn't, it forces people with um, green values to get stuck with orange policies, orange to get stuck with amber, amber to get stuck with red, and so on. So I think we really are going to have to think through that part of it. And that part is uh, scary. Because it's just, it's a it's a big change, and the United States is many things around the world, and and it's a it's a joke in Europe, of course, because you know as I put it, we have no culture, and that's true. We're a young, young, young country, and we don't have these thousand-year-old cultures that every other part of the world has. But we have one thing. We are the oldest democracy on the planet. And that is not something you want to tamper with lightly. So, and yet if we don't, I think we're going to continue to get stuck with some of these real, real problems about the transparency of justifying, integral, in a world that claims to be egalitarian. And that's something to think about, I guess. Amen.